Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Liz Manischel. And I am Ulrich Bursell. You know, we've never talked about how our names rhyme, but it's it's nice. Oh, yeah. This week, we welcome writer-director Anna Biller to the show to talk about the making of her feature film, The Love Witch, which seems to have reached mini-cult status. And, you know, so I've always used color symbolically, because I don't think of film as realism. You know, I think about it if it is poetry. I feel like direct emotion, like people are trying to get at direct emotion through realism. But I think for me, direct emotion is always more effective to me when it's filtered through style, like through design and color and poetry and, and when it's distanced. It's a cult film. Yeah, it's cultish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of hard with cult because that like, you know, it's like the more time that's behind it, the more culty it can be. Right. And so it's only been a few years. It's been like four years. So, I mean, I feel like it's in the very beginnings of its cult status. It's but not we'll at see. peak cult yet. No, in 15 years, we'll see where it's at. Will it be Evil Dead level? Who knows? Ooh, only time will tell. <laughs> Anna also talks about what she's been working on since The Love Witch, uh, the struggles she's been facing and taking her filmmaking career to the next level. But before we get to Anna, what do we do? Oh, mail. Breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So we got two more letters of note this week, which is completely amazing. Um, but it also looks like we have an old email from way back in November that I'm pretty certain we never read. We didn't read this, right, Liz? Can you confirm that? I, I don't think we read it. I I don't remember reading it. I really don't think we did. So, um, you know, apologies to Matthew or Matt for not reading this letter, but we will read it right now. Liz and Ulrich, I recently stumbled across your podcast and I really enjoyed the discussions and entertainment. I especially applaud you for the work you're doing with short filmmakers. You guys offer beneficial insight to your listeners that I'm sure they find extremely helpful. I would have loved something like this when I was starting out. I'm a longtime filmmaker involved heavily in both uh, sides of the camera, actor, writer, producer. I'm also a network executive with that point of view as well. Whoa. I'd be more than happy to come on your show if you find that of interest. Anyway, I just finished listening and I thought I'd drop you a note. Best of luck with all you do. Sincerely, Matt. I've um, heard of Urban Flix. This is not just oh, like a have. random company. I've heard of Urban Flix. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I looked him up and he like was on um like one of the C CSI shows um with a recurring character for like nine or ten episodes. And he's been ah! a bunch of other TV and he's got like a new movie that he executive produced. Um, like I think the Outlaw Johnny Black is what it's called, starring uh, Michael Jai Jai White. So he's doing a lot of stuff. He's pretty, pretty awesome. So I think he would make a good candidate for the show. For yeah. sure. But um, but, you know, thank you for the kind words and the encouragement. It really means a lot like getting these letters because like, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're editing an episode in the middle of the night to like come out the next day or you're like two dates late on releasing an episode or whatever. It's like sometimes it's like, oh, man, like I got to get this podcast done. But then when you get these kinds of notes, it's like, oh, well. All of it is worth it. Oh, and that's all the work you do, Auric. And I also want to acknowledge that I'm usually like the devil on your shoulder just being like, let's just do one a month. Let's just do <laughs> one every two weeks. And you're always like, no, 
We do no. one a week. So you're holding, you're carrying the banner for us. We have to do one a week or we don't deserve to be a podcast. Um, but that's just how I feel. I mean, you know, no offense to other podcasts that do every one, every two weeks or one a month, but I just, you know, as a podcast listener, which I actually don't listen to podcasts anymore, but when I used to listen, it's like, I think one a week is the minimum because a lot of the ones I like, they do two two times a week, you know. Oh my um, gosh, sometimes. that's so much work. And then if you look at our, our good friend, uh, Alex Ferrari, he does like eight a week. So, you he know. He does at least one a day. <laughs> he does one a day. <laughs> that guy. Oh man, but like, look at his empire, you know, like he's got, he's got the success, you know, from doing that many shows. So, I mean, that's one of, you know, I just feel like that's what we do. We do one a week. Um, maybe it'll change one day, but we'll see. Do you want to read this next part, Liz? We are not focusing on a get shorty this week, but um, we have another letter to read. And this one's from Travis of Travis and Madison, who just said they're short. Why haven't they fixed these cameras yet on the show? And he sent us some, you know, I actually didn't check with you, Ulrich, but I, I've excerpted a few things because um, I didn't sure. think we needed to read the whole letter. Um, sure. But, so we'll see what happens. We'll Travis see. will, he'll hate us because for our censorship, but that's fine. Your omissions, they make sense. <laughs> I mean, sense. really, They're it's good. I, I, I back them up. <laughs> He's reading to you. So I'm, I'm uh, ultimate taboo. I'm reading the letter that's addressed to you, but it says, hey, Ulrich, Travis here. Uh, then he goes on to say, I don't know which I loved more last week's coverage of W-H-T-F-T-C-Y, which is their acronym for their short, or this week's breakdown of the submission video. Side note from Liz, we've been talking about the short a lot, and also um, Madison and Travis have been just like really lovely and communicative, so we're happy to bring them into the, they're like now like side characters of this podcast. <laughs> they're like- They'll love that. They'll guest love stars. That. For what it's worth, in regard to our short, you pretty much nailed our intention. The woman is crazy. She is an unreliable narrator, and it is a social justice Travis Bickle who projects social issues, issues where they may maybe aren't relevant. Uh, Devin was not some monster, just a major douchebag, but he didn't have to die. And you are correct in that we wanted to toe that line and not lean too hard into her fiery rage to salvage the twist of her being the danger rather than the victim. Yeah, I mean, and he goes on to explain a little bit more about why they did that <clears throat> and the reactions to the film that were a little bit uh, counter to their intention, right? So it says, um, we've had many screenings where they literally hoot and hollered for Luke's demise without even considering that they may be processing the details wrong. See, I'm just skipping over some stuff because I feel like I'm talking too much. Uh, Travis still <laughs> continues to say uh, he, loves, he loves that we, uh, they won us over with the voiceover. Um, which again, I will reiterate, we really did enjoy it. But apparently we were off base about one thing. Auric, do you want to tell us what we were off base about? Yeah. So in the email, he says, you know, there's one thing you're totally horribly off base about. And then um, he attached a full res version of the photo in the background that I thought was like two weird photos of me like put together. But in fact, it is actually a naked Travis draped over a picture of me which was hilarious. And like, when I first saw it, that was kind of what I thought. I was like, wait, is that some other person? And I was like, no, no one would ever do that. No one would put their photo in with me, you know, in that way. That's gotta be just something he found of me online and is some weird. So I'm very uh, flattered uh, that uh, and impressed by his Photoshop work. 
And then uh, Travis continues, while I'm flattered to be confused for a handsome college Ulrich, I felt I had to set the record straight. I don't think I read that part of the email yet until right now. And I can't believe that he photoshopped a naked picture of himself. This is amazing. Yeah, it's actually a really good Photoshop job, too, because it does actually look like we're in the photo together. Um, so we'll we'll put that post of that actual high res version of the photo in the show notes so you can all see uh, Travis's amazing work. Um, and maybe one day we'll get a beer and, uh, you know, yeah, meet in person. We can laugh about this because you're so close on print. It's like you, there's a level of intimacy <laughs> that has been breached here. Yeah, exactly. Thanks again uh, to Travis and Mass and for your participation in the show and mm. for uh, communicating with us about the short. I, I love hearing filmmakers um, respond to our response to their films. I think it's really interesting to have that dialogue because I feel like we're all figuring it out. We're all just trying to, you know, make films and do our best. And I mean, just thinking of what um, uh, Averill said in the last episode where she's talking about like these Oscar winning producers, like saying like, I don't know how we did it. I don't know how I'm going to make the next movie. Like I just, you know, we're just struggling just like the rest of it. And it's, it's just interesting that like, no matter how high you go, it's the same struggle again and again and again. And then in an episode you'll hear in a week, Kevin Lewis talks about that too. And he's like seven features deep and like still has to prove himself to um, fi financiers to like, you know, be allowed to direct this movie. It's just like, it's crazy, man. But it gives me such comfort, right? Because I think you start out filmmaking and you look at people who have made multiple features or series or whatever, and you're like, oh, how do they figure it out? And you realize nothing has been figured out. And that makes me feel like we're all, it, it like it evens the playing field a little bit more and it makes you feel less, um, even though we're more powerless, it makes you feel less bad about it, I guess. Right. I also want to acknowledge that what's great about having this back and forth with the filmmakers is that like Ulrich and I are watching the short maybe once, maybe twice. We're just kind of like speaking off the top of our head about what our immediate impressions are. And then it's like from the filmmaker who thought about it for months, if not years, we get to hear like a completely different, well-tuned, thoughtful uh, reasoning behind why they made the choices they did. So I really enjoyed that. Um, so always feel free to respond to our constructive feedback, I guess. Yeah. And send us your short film. We are like kind of running out of shorts. I have like maybe three more contenders on there that will come out at one point or another, but I really want like a deeper pool to like, uh, you know, watch through. So if you have sent your short and you haven't heard from us, um, don't worry, you're still in the running there. You're still in the queue. Um, but, uh, you know, if you haven't sent your film and you're thinking about it, send it now. Send it to us. We want to watch your short films. Um, sometimes we go out and find people and reach out to them with shorts, but not very often. Like, we just really try to get people to send them in to us. So, you know, if you made a short and you've got 10 views online and you want, you know, 10 more views, uh, you should... <laughs> reach out to us because that is about as many views as you'll get on our show but at least pe you'll, people will talk about it that's at least something yeah, yeah so if you want to be like uh, Matthew and Travis and Madison you can send us a question comment or suggestion to podcast and makingmoviesishard.com uh, also where you would send your short film or if you like the show you can leave us a review on iTunes um, or any of the other places you can re reviews for podcasts uh, we also have a Patreon page if you didn't know um, so if you really love the show and you want to support us go over to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and give us a dollar, five dollars, or nine dollars, which will get you one of our brand new enamel pins. Side note, 
uh, we read an email on the show from, um, was it Jeanette? Jeanette? Yeah. Jeanette. And like literally moments after we read it, she became a patron at the $9 level. So Jeanette, thank you so much for your support. I mean, this is just making it easier and easier for us to hire Carly to edit our episodes and I don't have to do all of them, which is really, really wonderful. So, um, yeah, all yeah. the money goes to the show. It doesn't, we in no way are profiting from this no. experience. It basically just goes to Carly. Like I basically, <laughs> you know, whenever I hire her, whatever I have from the show, I like use that to supplement what I pay her. So, um, you know the the dent on my bank bank account gets smaller and smaller each time we get a new patron so thank you very much much yeah. appreciated and lastly make sure to jump over to our instagram page um you know follow us there if you haven't already and then you can also click the link to our bio to get to our new youtube page subscriber and to subscribe that's what i meant to say and i don't think we're at 200 uh followers yet on there we're probably like at like 188 maybe or something so we need like 12 more of you um we do a terrible terrible job of promoting our youtube page like basically we don't promote it that's that's what it is it's not like we do a bad job we just don't do it so hopefully we'll do it more and people will go there but you know Good old Gary Kennedy keeps on leaving comments. He left a new one. We'll read that next week. Thank you, Gary. You're the best. <laughs> we still have some time left, Ulrich. So I don't, I'd like to hear where you are with the alternate. What's going on? I don't remember what I said last time, but I mean, the the state of the film now is that it's completely picture locked. I just got the, the files off to the colorist about a week ago. So he's actually, I think I'm going to get my first color treatment um, to look at on, I think, Friday. It's <gasps> like, gonna happen really soon it's very exciting uh, that's like in a couple days um and then the visual effects keep on coming in every day sound is being worked on um getting close to a first dialogue pass um for the sound and i keep on updating the cut so like uh one of the film festivals um reached out to me the, the, the i don't know if it was the director or the head of programming or whoever but they are like hey like do you have any of the visual effects done for the movie that we could see um just because the cut that we had before didn't have any and so i added all the ones i had and i sent them back to the to the the festival for it was for cinequest so we'll was see it what michael? they say did michael email it, you it was it was michael yes what is michael's title was just so i'm a little bit more oh educated. i just think of him as head of the festival let me look i have his i have yeah we, we email each other so let me just see head of the festival shout out to michael um thank you for taking a deep look at my film i much appreciate much much appreciate it but uh did did one of your films play at cinequest before uh speed of life got in but we actually had to decline um because the film wasn't ready and i was it was like because we <laughs> i had a baby february 8th and then oh, we premiered wow. in like april so we actually had to decline two festivals because I was either just post birth and the film wasn't done or it just wasn't good timing. Um, programming director is okay, Michael wow. Rebel. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that happened. And then um, I got a visual effect shot in and it was of this one scene and it was kind of um, like not the way it should be. And I was like, Oh, why is that? It's oh, this part shouldn't be here. And then it made me look at that scene a little bit more closely. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, man, did I edit this completely wrong? Like, did I just completely screw up this moment in the movie? And so I like re-edited it and I looked at it and then I sent it to a couple of people, um, the two different versions. <gasps> I never then, responded like, to your email. <laughs> oh my God. Liz never responded to my email. <laughs> Liz was one of those people. I literally uh, just remembered. I'm so sorry, Ulrich. Oh, my okay. God. 
but uh, but basically what happened was one person who was like my um you know producer executive producer and um you know one of the people behind the the funding of the movie was like no we nailed it we got it right this is the way it should be um unless like the version you created is wrong you, you shouldn't do it the new way that you suggest but maybe you could do it a middle way and then i talked to jason our cinematographer and he was like both work um you could go either way. Um, oh, but a third version might be interesting to see. And then I was going to edit the third version together. And then I was like, you know what? Like, like, cause this would cause like a ton of extra work for everybody. Like the, the music just got finalized. So the music wouldn't, he wouldn't have to do anything he's done, but it would be like the sound person, the color and the colorist would have to reconform their whole projects. Um, you know, based off this extra 30 seconds, I would put back into the movie that I cut out. Um, and I thought about it, I thought about it, I thought about it, I slept on it, I, I looked at it again. And what I basically ultimately decided was that we made that decision for a reason. Like we thought about it for a long time. It wasn't a quick decision. And, and when I watched it again, I saw all the reasons why I had decided to do it that way. And I was like, you know what? Like it is a missed opportunity. It's like an extra visual effect that we cut. It's a stunt that we cut. But the reason why we cut the stunt and the reason why we cut the visual effect, there's a good reason for it. And it helps story to cut it. And, and we still get to solidify all the things that we get to solidify. And we still get to see the visual effect like three, three minutes later or two minutes later in the movie. It's not like you don't get to see it. It's just, you see it later. And it's like, you know what? I got to trust myself. Right. Like, I think that's one of the, the main lessons is like, it's Kevin not like Lewis you said that he said, trust <laughs> yourself. <laughs> right. Right. And then it's like, it's like, you know, cause you, you, you work so hard on the thing. You think about it forever. No decision is, is, is made lightly. And then sometimes when you watch it later, you're like, why did I decide that? That was such a stupid decision. Oh, I'm such an idiot. And then you look at it again and you're like, Oh wait, I actually had a really good reason for doing this. Yeah. This wasn't happenstance. This was all by design. Trust the decision you made in in the editing process. So that's yeah, what I decided to do. Hindsight is not always twenty twenty, right? Hindsight is, right. can be manipulated with your memory and like your mood and all these other things. Like you may, I think that's really interesting that you realized you were right. I think, and also because I was about to say like, you know don't worry about the workload for other people make the decision that's best for the film. And it sounds like the best thing for the film did happen. Right. Yeah. I, I guess that's true. It's also, it's not my, it's not just their workload. It would be like my workload. It would probably be another 10 hours of work on my end. Um, but you know, my producer, Jeff, um, who I love was like, don't do it. <laughs> just if it's going to be that much of a, of a turnaround and even potentially cost more budget, like don't do it. Like you, trust your decision, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's what we're going to do for better or for worse. Um, and I don't feel that way about any other part of the movie. It was just that one part. And there's so many things. I mean, Liz, we cut so much out of this film. We cut probably like, I mean, the first cut was like an hour and 40, 50 minutes. And now the movie is like, you know, or maybe it was, it was even two hours. I think it was two hours the first cut. Now it's an hour and 25 with credits. Perfect. Perfect. So, <laughs> Perfect duration. Yeah, I think so. I like, I like the length. Um, but it's just like, you know, if I know, and if I had known when we shot, like what we were going to cut, like we could have cut like four days off of the schedule. 
Like it just whole yeah, scenes, you don't know those whole, kind of things so. though. I know, but it's like one of those things that I want to get better at for my next movie is like I don't want to shoot so much extra. And I know you always shoot extra and you always shoot more. But I mean, dude, if we if we had four more days, like the amount of stress that we would have saved, especially me, oh, it would have been crazy, you know. But I guess it'll just have to find out like on the next movie, like how it'll work out. Like if I'll have made those, you know, how what decisions I make and if I am able to cut down on the on the fluff that we shoot, you know. Yeah, I always um, because I always think there's certain things in in each of my movies where I just really regret or I feel aren't good enough. And I always talk to my partner, Sean, about that. And he's like, you know, a, a, a film is never finished for a director. You could always go back and fix things. You have to let go. And then also, like, the point is to get better, right? You're going to get better with every single film. So I don't, I wish that he were here. He probably is a much better, <laughs> very much better, like, relay in this very comforting um, advice. But, but I, it always makes me feel better knowing that, like, other people, no one's happy with their film, right? Oh, I right. mean, I can think of like really stupid shit that I'm still thinking about for Bread and Butter and stupid shit I'm still thinking about but for Speed of Life. We we cut an entire subplot in Speed of Life that really, I think, leaves a vacuum in the film that people do notice when they review it. Um, but it doesn't matter because you take that, you learn from it, you go to on to the next. On to the next, yeah. Elric. yeah. Yeah, I cut like a whole character and subplot out of our movie too. And I feel like really bad for the actor <laughs> that I had but, them removed from the movie, you know? Yeah. Did you, when you did that, did you call your actor and like tell them like, I'm so sorry, like we had to remove this, your character from the movie or well, how did that Sean. work? It was just oh, it was really, Sean. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sean's still in the movie, but you like, we just cut out like, I think two, maybe two scenes, one to two scenes where he got to actually show much more of an emotional range. Uh, okay. Yeah. And like, it is nepotism. Like Sean's very good. I cast him because he's a good actor, but it's also like, this is supposed to be a springboard for him each film to like right. show him off a little bit. And right. um, when we have to cut those scenes, same thing happened with Lauren Lapkus and bread and butter. She's wonderful. My writing was really bad and like two scenes of her had to cut them out. And um I didn't contact her because I just kind of felt like I was a very little, I'm a little, I'm like a guppy to these right. people, you know, right. like I don't think they well, really care. Especially like that. Lauren, Lauren Lapkus is like pretty well known, you know, right. actor and personality. So yeah, I mean, I could see that. I mean, she's probably used to that at this point, you know, just like. Yeah. And also like, I don't think she really was like, I don't even know if she's seen bread and butter. Like, I don't even know if she's, right. you know, I don't think uh, it really impacts her day if, right. if we right. cut her down a little bit. Did you get her to retweet the movie or anything like that or, show, you know, post the trailer or those kinds of things? I think she did in the beginning. You know, the mm -hmm. distributor at The Orchard, they like had individual social postings for each actor and I doled them out. Okay. And pretty sure, I mean, the issue for us was Bobby <clears throat> was in SNL, but he offered to do a lot of press for the film. But then once you get into the SNL shooting schedule, he was barred from doing press for anything else. Oh, wow. Crazy. So it's because of our release date, it minimized his contribution to the film. Oh, wow. That's too so, bad. So, you know, that happens with name cast, right? You have to like work around their promotional schedules too. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, well, anyways, I, I'm going to call that actor and just... I, I, I'm just putting it off. I just need to do it. Just be like, hey, man, you know, your work was great. You were awesome. And that has nothing to do with your performance. It's just what the, the movie needed, you know, and he's still in the movie, but he's just like, 
you know, his two, wait, yeah, his two big, his one big scene and his one smaller scene had to get cut. And like, we like literally frame him out of the movie, which I felt guilty for doing. But it's like, when we had him in, people were like, why is this character here? What's going on? You know, like mm. we, they were so confused because we cut his other big scene from is the movie. Is this the coworker? So, like the guy that comes over, he has to edit for this guy. Oh, and... no, 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 not Johnny. Okay, yeah, I was no. like, I don't know how he could be cut out. No, he, he, no, it was another character. I don't even think the version you saw, I don't think you saw his opening scene. Um, okay. There was like this, like, cold open where we see another character encounter an alternate and so like it sort of was uh, idea to set up the idea that alternates exist in this reality or that like people are encountering their alternates and then yeah and then it springs board for our story but then when we showed it to people like everyone was like really confused like why are we who is this what what's going on like is it why is it is this the main character in the movie and then you get to to jake and they're like oh this is the main character but like why are we watching the other person and then they pop up later and they're like oh i guess that makes sense but i was kind of confused and so we cut out the opening scene left in the other stuff and then they were like why are we focusing on why is this guy getting a close-up right now like this doesn't make any sense and so then we were like okay well you know i then i cut it out and then like new people like people who had seen it you know, both ways were like, oh, so much better. And then people who saw the movie were like, they didn't have any notes on that um, that scene. And so it was like, oh, okay, we clearly made the right decision because um, it just made things go smaller. It was almost to the point where it's like, we either needed to cut him out completely or we had to add a whole bigger subplot for him. Right. But we, we just didn't have time to, to you know, or the budget. Yeah. We didn't have the budget to reshoot anything. That's what happened with um, us with Sean. It was like it wasn't good enough to stay in the film, so it had to be right. shortened. Well, it's it's fun talking to you about it because it it feels very similar, and it and it makes me realize that I made the right decision, and that's like just part of what happens in movies. Is you just have to make those tough calls sometimes. You know, it's like that Nick Cage story that Kevin Lewis says in a few in I guess next week in the episode next, next week, week. Yeah. where like Nick Cage is like, "Good luck with your movie." It's like ultimately you they signed. The, the, the rights over they're giving you the performance they're putting everything in and then they're letting go and you know you had to do what was best and i'm sure they know that there's always a possibility that they're going to be limited in their opinions. yeah cool well, i hope that's a good update on the movie and i'm just, you know <laughs> waiting waiting on uh film festivals my fingers are crossed across my fingers well let's uh let's get to our conversation with anna then So we are here today with Anna Biller, um, filmmaker, writer, director extraordinaire. We're going to ask some questions about her latest feature, The Love Witch. Um, it's going to jump right in. Um, how many days did you shoot The Love Witch? I don't, know, I don't remember. I think it was like, it was about 36 days, but it was, it was over about eight weeks. We just had a lot, you know, because like a week of shooting wasn't five or six days of shooting. It was often like three days of shooting because of the prep for every set, for almost every set. We, you know, we had set dressing and pre-lighting for a lot of the locations. So, um, and then you have a strike day. So, so that, so typical would be like a day of set dressing, a day of pre-lighting, three days of shooting, three or four days of shooting and then we do a strike for a location. How long do you work on the film uh, from, you know, being brought on or writing it to it coming out and being released? Well, for, for, for the language, it was obscenely long. I, I think it was, I don't know, it was years and years and years and years and years and years. And it was just, I didn't have enough money to make it actually. That was the problem. It wasn't enough, money. like I had enough money to shoot it, but I didn't have enough money to prep it. 
And so I kind of prepped it by myself for like a number of years. It was very strange. It, I couldn't fit into the budget. And I, it's kind of like you can chase more money forever. Like for years, people chase money for years and years. I just like spent that time instead just sort of making like costumes and props and organizing the schedule over and over and over and trying to make it cheaper so that it was so that we could shoot it so that we could shoot it within the budget I had. I just couldn't, it was like almost like, it's like, how do we shoot this with this budget? I couldn't figure it out. So I had these like giant lists of props and I would just go through them one by one. And, you know, I looked at all the prop houses, like what can we rent? And then anything we couldn't rent, I would like try to make or something. It was pretty, and, you know, it's, it is kind of like, it, it went, you know, when I got through with all the props, I'm like, great, I got all the props. And it's like, oh, there's some medieval costumes. Literally, that was a year and a half of sewing, a year and a half. So it's like, oh, we're ready to shoot. I'll, now, now we just need the, it's like, no. And, um, <laughs> you know, I tried to hire people. I really tried. I tried to get costumers. I tried to get people on board. I tried to source it out, but I couldn't afford it. That was, again, it was just like, just it wasn't in the budget. Um, how big was your crew? I don't know. It wasn't very big. It was like 25 people, maybe in general, 20 to 25, some like on big days, it would sometimes be like 30, but um, like from 20 to 30, depending on the day. And then compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? You know, as I get become more experienced, it becomes easier to make films, but it also becomes, you know, I get films are more ambitious. So it's harder in that sense. So at least I, did, I kind of know like how to not that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not going to fall apart. Whereas when you're less experienced, um, there's a pretty good chance of that happening <laughs> on a, you know, on, on your first feature or you on your, on your shorts, even, you know, there's a bit, there's a, you know, things are always, there's always like hundreds of disasters because nobody really knows what they're doing, you know, or some people know, and, you know, but you know, like as, as you continue working, you, you learn and that, and that's actually why the prep takes longer and longer. You're like, I'm going to avoid a disaster. I'm going to keep, have this really organized and it was really good because if I hadn't learned the job of the ID, which is one thing I decided to do when making the leverage, is I'm going to really know the job of the ID in and, in and out because I, I was never able to have ADs that I could really work with. And I thought maybe it's because I don't know their job and I have to really learn and respect their job. And if I hadn't done that, the, the love witch would not have been a film because I didn't have any help from the production crew on the love witch. It just happened that, you know, because I never really had it before on smaller films, but not having it on a big, bigger film like that would have been it would, like if I didn't know how to do that. There were so many great people on the crew, but there were also some like that was my department and that department wasn't working with me. So it's like, I'm not really sure what went wrong. There's a lot of things that went wrong. It, very early on, I realized that I couldn't depend on them and I had to just make the film. And it was great because like I made the schedules, you know, and I had control of everything. And I think if I hadn't had control of the schedules and the budget and everything myself, that movie would have fallen apart for sure. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Um, just like, in what way were they not working with you? Well, I don't want to say, I don't want to say, I mean, I don't want to say bad things about people. It's just like, so for example, because it was such a small crew, I didn't have a script supervisor. Uh. And usually I don't, and I never have used one because I'm always just keeping all the shots in my head and I make storyboards that I'm very organized. But usually the AD is like right there with me, helping me with the shots. Cause it's like, we're doing the day, we're getting the day done. You know, we're, we're, we're taking off shots. So, but the AD refused to look, look at my storyboards and shot list because he said, that's a script supervisor's job. 
So it's what? like, well, and it's that's like, well, that's true, actually, but we don't have a script supervisor, but you can't force somebody. So it's a, so like instead, like me and the DP did it, but it made it was like hard on me and the DP to have to keep all of that. They're not helping you, and you don't know why, and you don't have time to figure out why, and you don't have time to replace them. And you don't. Have, <laughs> you're in the no, middle no. of shooting a film, and you just have to go. So that's what we did. We just like would go and we would just work. But you said you you didn't want to fire them because it would be too hard to replace them, right? That was the you idea. No, it's just I didn't have time to fire them because I was working yeah. three days a week. I didn't have to like I'm like, I'm like I don't have time to go look at resumes and like interview. You know, it's like <laughs> I don't want to say it's because I was I'm a female director, but I think it was a little bit being a female director because I think sometimes and I've, I've had this on every film I've ever shot, and I've not I've not heard stories like this quite like this from male directors so I got to think it's either me it's either my personality or it's the kind of scripts I write that and the kind of work days that I organize that people are rebelling against or maybe it's just that I'm a female director and I haven't been able to figure it out but I think it's like a combination of the fact that I have unusual scripts and I have a lot of setups you know so I ask people to work very very hard and then also um I don't know what I want you know sometimes crews don't like it when you know exactly what you want they prefer a looser set so I know that sometimes people are, are not happy with that because a lot of people like, um, especially on lower budget crews, they like for the film to be collaborative, like 100% collaborative. Like as if 20 people are equally making the film and it's a community effort. And they don't like somebody coming in with such a strong vision. You know, this is script is completely written. You know, the storyboards are completely finished. The shot lists are done. And, and it's like a task, like it's work. Like you have to go through all these shots and you have to, do all this work and some people feel resentful about that like they don't it just makes them feel like a drone or a drudge but I think like I mean that's what you do on a union shoot you know what I mean so it's like I had these very low budget shoots that I was kind of treating like union shoots in the sense of how I expected people to step up and not everybody was into that you know that was part of it but part of it was just this weird kind of like bullying and ganging up and gaslighting that I've, I've always had it like on every set like from somebody it's it's like or at least a couple of people. Yeah. I've noticed you do a lot, right? You even you mentioned at the beginning of this interview or this conversation, you know, the costumes. I know that you do music and you know, you write, you direct, you do all of these things. I'm sure I neglected to mention a few. Would do you do that because you want to, or do you do it because you feel like the partners you're working with are not putting in the effort that you would? Well, again, I haven't had a choice because I haven't had the budget tired people because you know most of that work is pre-production work and like I said I've never really had a proper pre-production budget when you have like when you're doing like period stuff or you're doing stuff that has like a tremendous amount of of difficult production and costume design usually what happens is that you don't get to do it you know if you have a low budget film and you you can't write something like that you know you can't have a a period like a medieval scene you know (laughs) because you know what I mean you just can't have it and that's why films you low budget films don't do that because it's a because you can't, because it's never in the budget, you know? So in order to get it, to have, to afford it, um, labor is what costs so much. Like fabric doesn't cost that much, you know, but labor costs a lot. So, you know, if you only have to buy the fabric and my labor is free, then I can have the scene, you know? Well, your labor's not free, but- Well, I mean, it's free in the sense that it's not like, um, there's there's no salary. I don't have to get a salary for it you know, from the production budget. I mean, that's kind of like, I think what most independent filmmakers do is like try to take on as many roles as they can, um, especially in prep, right? To get the movie ready to be shot because, you know, 
otherwise, otherwise, how could we make a movie if we were paying ourselves or hiring a bunch of people to do stuff? Yeah, every, yeah everyone does it. You know, the thing that's weird about my films is that I'm doing it like for longer or something. Like I'm doing it, I'm, I'm doing all this sewing, like more sewing than other people or, or something, you know, more, <laughs> I, more scouting, more sewing, more. I can more tell you, I do off. zero sewing, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do more sewing than both of us do, for sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just that I spend longer, you know, and it's because I want to get because what I'm trying to do is is do kind of like studio type films on on a micro budget. And that's, I guess, what's, what's weird, because it's like people don't usually do that. But it's because I'm an artist, you know, I love it's like being in my studio and I, you know, I love doing it. You know, I love making stuff and love sewing and it feels I don't want to do that anymore, though, because I just feel like I don't want to spend like seven years making a movie anymore. Although you could like again, you can spend like seven years looking for for financing, which is actually what, what's what's turning out to happen now. Is like I'm spending all my time looking for financing rather than making props. But it's more like how other people do things. So I feel more professional. So I have like a comment and a question. The comment first, um, the look of the Love Witch is incredible. I just watched the trailer before this conversation. So you're talking about the low budget that you had, but you certainly made it look like, like you're saying, like a studio level feature, like it looks incredible. Um, the question is, um, how did you get that very vintage look for the film when you're shooting in 2015 or 2014? Like how did you achieve that? Well, you know, it's production design, art direction and lighting. And it's also casting, believe it or not. You know, lighting is hugely important. It's, it's, it's you know, but you know, it's interesting because like, um, like I, you know, like my actress, Samantha Robinson, who has such a period face, like there are stills of her, like um, on the set and she's just standing in her light and she's just standing there. And so it's also hair and makeup, you know, and her hair and makeup and her wardrobe, you know, we have these stills that are digital stills of her just standing there. They're not film stills. And it looks like a still, like, even though it's digital, like it's a, something like it was shot in 1965 or something. And but if you see like a crew member standing there next to her or standing in the shot alone and he's like rigging something, it doesn't look like a shot from 1965. It looks like from now because of the way he looks or she looks, you know? Somebody's wearing a tool belt and they're, you know, and they're standing in the same light in the same exact position. It just looks like a, a you know, something from today. It's something about the actors too. Like the actors, the hair and makeup, the, the clothing, the colors on the set, and then how they're lit. And, and did you shoot on actual film or is it actually digital? No, it's film. Okay, okay. That's probably part of it too, right? It is, but what I'm saying is these stills, all all of the stills from the leverage, the ones that you see all over the internet, they're digital stills, you know? And almost nobody, I mean, so yeah, the film, the film, especially if you see projected from the original negative, that's really, really, really period looking. But again, the stills are digital. So this, so it's that's not film. That's it's capturing the images is because it looks, you know, everything, the setting and the actors and the hair and the makeup and the colors. And I think it's because, you know, partly, you know, it's because in those old films, everything, everything in the set was attended to in, in terms of it was all chosen very, very specifically and made and built and coordinated, co color coordinated. And they haven't really done that since the '60s or the early '70s. And that's how you, movies used to look. You know, they would be art directed, they'd art direct the life, the hell out of movies, you know, they just through every inch of their, you know, every frame was so um, controlled. 
and, and people mostly don't do that anymore. They want to go for a more naturalistic, realistic. But it wasn't just in movies that people did that. You know, they did that in their homes. Like if you look at decorating magazines from the from the 50s and 60s and 70s, you'll see like the rooms were all color coordinated. You know, like people's houses look like that. And, you know, people, my mom said she knew somebody in school, they called her Orange Sue. And she had like an orange car. She only wore orange dresses and um, did orange hair. They called her Orange Sue, but it was kind of just like people did that, you know, it was kind of a thing to like play with color. I was looking at your website um, before we had this chat and, uh, and, you know, in a lot of the interviews that you've done, I mean, you, you seem to have purpose-driven art. And I know you probably talked about this millions of times. I'm sorry, Anna, but how did you, I, I don't know, a lot of this comes from my perspective, uh, from a level of confidence that you have and a lot of patience you have. And I'm just curious if that, if you've always been that way, or if you've recently developed this kind of yen or perspective on why you make films in the way that you do I was always making stuff like even when I was a little girl I was constantly making stuff I was very busy <laughs> I was always like making dolls and making drawings and just writing trying to write stories and plays I don't know I my mother is a fashion designer she's always sewing my dad's a painter he's always painting I just like think I've always like like to make make things you know and we never had any money we were pretty poor growing up so Whenever my parents need anything, they would just make it. You know, my mom was the most beautifully dressed woman that she knew, but she didn't have, but it was all because she, she would make her beautiful clothes, you know, kind of neat. And um, I don't know. So I just, it's something you learn, you know, it's kind of, you learn from a child. Like if you want something good, you can make it and you can take that too far. But um, I started studying I've been, always been such a cinephile, but I started, when I started making films, like in college, I started really studying, like, the way movies look that I love, the movies that I love the most and what they look like. And then I've been studying that for years, you know, the, the way the decors are, like what, like what, you know, like a movie like, let's say, Pillow Talk, and like, what, why, you know, why is that so enchanting? It's partly because of the, you know, the color design, you know, in a lot of these movies. I mean, most of my favorite movies are black and white, but um, I think if you're going to shoot in color, you might as well um, take advantage of color. You know, you know, Eisenstein, you know, I used to read a lot of Eisenstein. I was very serious when I was a film student. And um, he, he had the same idea about color because he at first he thought color was going to destroy the poetry of cinema because things would be too realistic. But then he said, in order to not have that happen, you have to use color very deliberately. And I remember reading that as a student and thinking like, aha, that's true. That's absolutely right. Color has to be symbolic. It has to be purposeful. It has to tell the story. And, you know, so I've always used color symbolically because I don't think of film as realism. You know, I think about it as poetry. I feel like direct emotion, like people are trying to get at direct emotion through realism. But I think for me, direct emotion is always more effective to me when it's filtered through style, like through design and color and poetry and, and when it's distanced, when it's, you know, because that's, that's why I love, you know, filmmakers like Bergman, you know, people who take something and put it into like a fairy tale, you know, I always respond to work like that more, or Jean Cocteau, or, or even just the old, you know, 30s Hollywood cinema that was so um, over the top. It was so glamorous that it was like insane. 
and it becomes sublime, like it overwhelms your senses. You know, another thing Eisenstein said is that if you want the audience to be beside themselves, then everything in the frame has to be beside itself. Mm. That's right. You know, the walls are beside themselves, you know, and the the couch, (laughs) (laughs) you know, not just the actors. And then the lighting, you know, is like, the lighting is so much part of that because if you light with like a big softbox and everything is the same, you know, they used to light for like to bring out the actor's soul. You know, they used to like eight lights on an actor, you know, make the eyes sparkle, make the hair shine, you know, make the face like a sculpture, piece of sculpture, make the clothes dimensional. And, you know, like, like we have stereoscopic vision, so we see kind of in 3D, but the but the camera, it doesn't. The camera is 2D. So like the art of lighting used to be about trying to create three dimensions in two, like trying to create volume. They don't do that anymore, you know? So it's kind of like the art of painting, the art of illusionism, like that they developed in the Renaissance was trying to make, create volume. And that was like this huge advance in painting. And, and the same thing with lighting. It was always to try to create this, the feeling or the sense of volume, which, which actually creates a sense of excitement and pleasure and, and emotion. And that's, they've, 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 they've dropped that for just like documentary, like um, concerns, which are great too, right? It's like each, everything in its own place, but it, it shouldn't destroy the art of lighting, which I think has kind of been destroyed a little bit. So how did you find uh, a cinematographer and, and a gaffer who wanted to light the same way that you, that you did with this volume and this different, you know, kind of old school approach well i already knew david mullen he, he shot a short of mine we went to the same school and i knew he, he could do it and then and i just kept um asking him until he broke down <laughs> you know he's shooting a lot of tv and you know he's busy he's very busy and i just you know i cast it and i had everything ready and i just like waited until the schedule opened up i just because you know because i it's too hard, you know, it's too, like, it's so, it's so hard to, to do that kind of lighting if you haven't done it before, but even if you want to do it, even, because none of the DPs I talked to even wanted to do it or, or even interested in it, but um, it's actually quite, it's quite a, a skill that you have to acquire over, over a period of years, and he had, and he, and he loves that stuff even more than I do. It was so fantastic, he was sending me all these stills from these, you know, old Technicolor movies like Lever to Heaven, and he was trying to nudge me he, like he was he's and he's very good with art direction and stuff too so he was trying to help me there like he would say like look at all these shots with um flowers in the foreground you know look at all he was he was he was hoping because you know um I always think about things like that but he wasn't sure that I would you know so he's trying to nudge me to try to think about how to create even more depth with how I placed objects and um but he didn't need to but it was like um it was great because we were so on the same page. Like we didn't even need to, we didn't talk at all on the set hardly at all. Like every once in a blue moon, moon I'd, I, he, I'd look at a shot and I'd say, can you just take one scrim off that light? And then he would do it. And I'd go, okay, look, you know, we can shoot. Or can you just raise that barn door like one inch? Because the lighting was always so perfect that I never had any problem with it. It was always perfect. So ideal. I have a question from the other side of the coin. So I'm sorry to depart from this thread, but um. I'm just really impressed by you, Anna. Sorry. Um, and also just you, there seems to be so much thought and care and love and talent into everything that you do. And I'm actually just very excited that the marketplace and the festival world and the artist support world has received you the way it has. But I, I'm curious if you care. Like, do you did you care that you got into Rotterdam? Was that a big deal for you? Or would you have 
how would you have traversed the marketplace if you weren't received in this way? Oh, no, I care a lot about this. <laughs> of course, you have to care because you don't get a career without that stuff. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not interested really that much in being, I mean, I, I'm not interested at all in being an outsider artist, to tell you the truth. I happen to be one, but it's not like, it's like a badge of honor or anything like that. You know, I, I would love, I would have loved to have gotten into, into more festivals. In fact, I'm, I'm a little bit sad that I didn't get into any top tier festivals in the United States for the love witch, because I didn't, you know, and it's like, it would have made a huge difference to screen at Sundance for, um, you know, I still got distribution though. Yeah, by but, oscilloscope, but just, which is yeah, really but just, cool. But just barely, just barely, because it was, it was sort of, you know, sort of like they saw it at the Maryland Film Festival, you know, and it's, or no, they weren't even there. Like I, I, a friend of theirs saw it at the Maryland Film Festival and sent it to them, but it was like, it almost slipped through. It was strange, it's like almost didn't, and you know, is it, there were like weird things that happened. For example, like it was rejected from, places you would think it would get in, like the San Francisco Film Festival. And initially, even the Seattle Film Festival, it was like, I was talking to some woman, um, she had made a short, uh, a horror short, and we'd, we'd gotten into most of the same festivals. And then she said, oh, are you gonna be at Seattle? I said, no, I didn't get in. And she was appalled, she was like, really? She goes, oh, I know the director there, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him. And, and then I got this, um, like a week before the festival, I got this um, email saying that it was going to be screened and it was like a special at the Seattle Film Festival was like a special new announcement. It's because the director saw it and he couldn't believe it had been rejected. He didn't know. But it was like, I think a lot of the young kids that are watching screeners are just throwing this thing in the trash, my work, because it's just so, they don't have the references, you know, they don't watch the old movies. They just think the lighting is bad. You know, maybe they just think it looks like an old TV sitcom or just like it's girly. I'm not sure what people are thinking, but it's insane. It's, it's kind of like, it's been actually really hard for me to get my work screened, to tell you the truth. Like even, even with my shorts, like, like my favorite film that I've made is a short called The Visit from the Incubus. And you know, I couldn't get that screened anywhere. I mean, it was so hard to get that thing screened. I couldn't even get that thing into trauma dance. Oh, wow. I mean, it was really hard. I mean, I was just not getting it screened. It was just like I sent it everywhere. I spent so much time and energy to sending it out. And you know, now, you know, like Criterion has it, whatever, you know, now it's fine. But it's like, so yeah, to answer to your question, that stuff is important because if I'd gotten maybe one of my shorts into Sundance, maybe my road wouldn't have been so hard as it's been. You know, maybe I could have not had to work seven years on the low, which maybe I would have found a, a producing partner where I could have gotten a bit of finance, you know, things like that, you know? So it's like those kinds of things, like your, your industry recognition, those things are incredibly important to whether you can get to make another movie at all. You know what I mean? So it's not just like, oh, you know, uh, I like the, it's not just about honor and prestige. It's literally about survival. Like whether you, you're going to be able to continue to get to make a movie in the future. Well, well, let's talk about that a little bit. So like you, you made your first feature and then talk to us, talk to us about the road from that feature to getting the love, which made and like what that looked well, like for you. You know, I got no interest from the industry when I made Viva, like zero. Like I didn't get, nobody wanted to represent me and nobody want, like almost nobody wanted to distribute it. I got two offers and they were, you know, um, 
for distribution. And, you know, it did show at a lot of festivals and it got a lot of attention, it, you know, international, all over the world. In fact, it got it, it was better, it was more successful in festivals than the Love Witch, actually, which is interesting. But, um, but I didn't get anybody, uh, I didn't get like a single industry meeting. And I didn't even know what industry meetings were at the time. So I didn't like try to get industry meetings. But I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't, you know, I, I did for the Love Witch, which is why I know it's different. But, um, but nobody wanted to work with me at all. I mean, it was like, it was like as if I hadn't made a feature film, except that I got a lot of fans. So, so that was interesting. I got lots and lots of fans and people really loved the movie, but it wasn't like that was gonna lead to anything. But I got private financing um, for The Love Witch. And again, it wasn't enough money. Um, but it wasn't through a studio. It wasn't through like industry people. It was just like an out, like, like rich person, you know, thing. <laughs> like, but, but fat, like a rich fan, you know, that was what it yeah. was. And you know, so it's like, that's really fantastic. But like a rich fan who's incredibly generous is not, not an industry person doesn't know anything about the industry, doesn't work in the industry and can't help me with, you know, finding a distributor or, so I was so dumb. I didn't even know that you're supposed to find a distributor. <laughs> I mean, I've just been like being an artist making movies. I didn't know. Now I know. Now I know. I've spent the last several years learning about the industry. So now I know a lot of things about the industry. And now I can't even believe that I did what I did before. It's almost like, whoa. It's, you know, it's like I just did all this shit. I didn't even know what I was doing. It's like amazing. But um now it seems harder for some reason now that I know how it's supposed to work. So it seems really difficult to make anything. <laughs> so I, I guess my initial gut reaction is like after The Love Witch, you know, and you've had the success with that film, why wouldn't that, did, did, is there not a reason why you couldn't just go back to that same financier who financed, you know, The Love Witch and be like, hey, like, like you know, let's start. Well, I could if I wanted to make a movie on that same budget. Right. But what, but what if you I, just... But, it could be like the, but, the but stepping I, but stone. The problem, but the problem is that that budget was a budget that it caused me to take seven years to make a film. So you see, that's why I don't want to do it anymore because I don't want to take seven years to make a film. <laughs> you know, I want to have enough money so that I can make a film like in the normal time period, you know, so I want to get, and I also want to do things. So now that I know how things are, are supposed to work, I can't really go back to doing it the other way. I mean, I could, but it would, it would involve, so if I didn't want to spend seven years making a film, I'd have to make a film that looked half as good as Love Witch. I'd be going backwards because, it, because if I didn't have that prep time, I would just end up having to make something that was a lot less ambitious for the same money. But also like that wasn't a union um, picture and that, that created a lot of problems for us. I think probably it'd have to go, especially the, the kind of actors so the thing is, if you want to, like the only way to make your investors money back, pretty much, unless it's, it's like some kind of a fluke, is to, is to get a good distributor. And, and then you have to have certain kinds of names. And if you have those kinds of names, you have to go to union. And if you go to union, then your budget shoots up. <laughs> so that's already more money. Like even if you do something that's just like, has no art direction, you're already spending double the money. If you go union, you see what I'm saying? When you're saying union, you mean SAG-AFTRA, not DGA, correct? Well, I'm already, no, I'm already doing SAG-AFTRA. What I mean is like Yahtzee. What I mean is like the whole, everybody union, you know, 
Because it's like, and then you have to, and then there's like, and then if you get big stars, you also need trailers. You know, you need a lot of, you know, you need more, you know, you need like people need their own trailer. You know, you don't know, like, you know, you do budgets, you make budgets and then you make budgets. And then you, and that's how you know, like, you're like, okay, this, this insane, you know, uh, whatever, um, William Castle, like, you know, almost nearly illegal way of shooting a film because it's, you're not, hundred percent you know we didn't have workers comp for the crew i mean i think back and i just like i get like i have like nightmares thinking about like what could have happened you know the actors were covered but you know what i mean you don't want to do that i mean you don't want to do that like once you like realize that you know what you should have been doing like you don't want to go back to like living like that i mean i think it's too scary to go to not to not do to not have all the union stuff in place. I mean, we were paying people overtime and we were paying them good money, but it was just that. So we had a lot of union crew, but then what happens is if you have a lot of union crew, then they try to, then the crew tries to flip, see? And then it, you know, which is what happened. So, I mean, like we avoided it, but you know, just like a lot of things that happened, you're realizing you're just like narrowly dodging bullets. What about, oh, you know, the fact I, I wrote that a very ambitious, I wrote, a, I wrote a very ambitious script is what happened. And it's a lot higher budget than I've ever worked with. And I thought I could sort of easily get the money and it's, it's not working out that way. <laughs> so. You have so many fans though. Like, you know, you mentioned it here, but also I just like going to your Twitter page, you know, I think it's like 26,000 people are following you. Obviously there are different ways to quantify fandom, but have you ever thought of just crowdfunding at least development or crowdfunding pre-production or oh, crowdfunding no, I have, something. I have, I have development money. Um, you know, I'm fine with that. You know, there, there wouldn't be enough money in crowdfunding for my budget because I'm trying to, I have a real budget here now. So what I've done um, during, during this quarantine, because I've, I've, there's nothing else to do. I've been writing lots of different, more scripts. I mean, I've, I've written like four scripts during the, and, and I've tried to write cheaper scripts and they're still not cheap enough so I could get my single investor but they might be cheap enough so that I could piece it together now a little bit more easily. What I'm learning is that like, like there are a lot of people that can work with like maybe like a three or $4 million budget, a lot of producers and a lot of people who are working on that level. But if you start to go above that, there aren't that many people that are working with those budgets actually. And you wouldn't think so, but actually um, that's the case. Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, mm, it's very rare to try to be able to put together a budget like that. If you, if you're not a bit, if you're not like, I'm not like a $10 million director. I'm like a 1 million or like, <laughs> you know, like people want to finance my films. They want to do it for like one or 2 million. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to do, you know, so I'm going to write something 5 million and above. It's going to be really hard to get financing. And I don't think that's unusual. I mean, I think most of the independent directors that are working today are working on those kinds of budgets. So is your current project one that's above that budget? Like is the, the Bluebeard film that you're working on now? Is well, that- the Bluebeard was like seven to 10 million. And I think that, I thought that would be easy to get. And it's, it's not. And, uh, <laughs> so I then wrote this other movie with like, like a $5 million budget. But then the problem is that you know, like Bluebeard, it's, it's also set in England and you, and you kind of can't even go to the scout right now. So then I wrote another one that takes place in the U.S. that could be done for maybe like four million. But it's a period film. 
So now I'm thinking of writing maybe like a three million dollar movie that isn't a period film, you know. <laughs> he got, you know, just uh, try to keep uh, making it easier for people to say yes. I think it's time to ask um, our Rick Kaplan question because it, it has to do with future projects. And he's a listener and a lovely human being. He asked, are there any genres that you haven't worked in yet that you'd like to explore in future films? Well, yeah, I mean, one of my, um, some of those scripts that I've written are in genres I haven't done yet. Like um, like my newest, latest script is noir, noir script. And um, it's from like a, a book written back in, in the day. And then um, my Bluebeard script is a gothic romance, which I guess I haven't done yet. And then um, I have this other script, which is a which is a medieval horror script, very very bloody. And that was very inspired by Birdman, but that's that's a true horror script. It's the only real horror script I've written. I'm I'm very excited about that. It's very very it's very very scary, which is neat. It's not like so funny as it is scary. Um, I've already done a western. Um, did you know that? That was my Incubus movie, Incubus West Saloon Western. Um, and I would like to do, you know, of course I'd love to do a musical. I think my favorite is, you know, I just, I think I'm really, really into thrillers though. I mean, The Bluebird's also a thriller. I'd love to do more thrillers. I think The Love Witch was kind of a thriller, but um, I don't know. I think that's a decent a answer <laughs> to <Rick's question. laughs> a great answer. I should say not decent. Great. Great. Um, <laughs> uh, Liz, do you have a question? I know. I feel like I've been hijacking this conversation. Do you have a question? I mean, I have like, <laughs> like zero to like thousands of questions depending on where we go. Um, let me just, Oh, I've never do this. I guess my last question from me is, sustaining and financing your lifestyle. You know, I know you don't want to talk about budget of Love Witch and we respect that and we don't have to talk about revenue that came from it. But as an artist, are you also working part-time to kind of supplement your income or are you just like a full-time artist? I don't work as much as I did. I do have like little jobs that I get on the side, but I mean, I mainly do like writing and research jobs. Like I used to do like to support myself. I used to work like in a dress shop and I did office filing and everyone was always making fun of me. Now this is important because it shows something, which is that all the people I went to school with, they all took industry jobs right away and they all had much higher paying jobs than me. And I was still, you know, working like for $10 an hour in an office or in a dress shop. And people thought I was so stupid for just like being, having these dumb, like part-time jobs. But it's because I was really serious about my art and I wanted to spend all of my time is that I possibly could doing my art, working towards doing what I went to school for and not just trying to make a lot of money, you know? And, you know, for a while I did some teaching and that sucked out way too much of my energy. So I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. But I'm one of the only people that I went to school with who's still making films. Because rather than trying to make money, I was always thinking, you know, I was happy to be poor and to just constantly be working on trying to make my own stuff. And it takes a long time sometimes to get there. But if you stick to it and you keep, and you know, the thing is, I, it's possible that I never would have had, you know, I've been lucky having people help me finance my films. It's, po it's possible that that never would have happened, but I would have still done it. I would have still just been exhibiting at weird little galleries or whatever, you know, cause I just, cause it doesn't, you know, it isn't about being famous or anything. It's just, it's more about 
I just want to keep doing the work. And I think most people who end up being successful at what they do are people that just love what they do, you know? So I have like kind of a two-part question. I'll do the first part first. Um, so, you know, Love Witch, like as we've talked about, it, it looks amazing. You know, it's got a huge fan base. It did very well. How do you personally feel about it now after like spending so much time on the movie and, you know, the challenges that you had making it? Like, what is your, you know, how do you feel about the film in general? I don't, when I, when I, th- think about the film i don't think about like the film itself and the challenges making it are two separate things but i have to say i know this might sound obnoxious but looking at my own work really cheers me up you know like looking at my own stills or looking at my own footage um is something it's like it's like almost like it's it's like something in the world that feels like it's something i want to be there in the world you know, like it's a kind of a, the film becomes like this object. It's not part of me anymore. It's just its own thing out there. And it's just floating out there. And every time I see like someone's like posting stills of it or something, it's like, it's my, it's like, it's, I guess it's more and more my taste than anything else that's out there. <laughs> you know, it's like exactly what I want it to be. You know, wow. that's a, that must be an amazing feeling. I mean, it is. My goodness. It is. Yeah. And like my, um, my work that I'm working on now really cheers me up, like my scripts and my storyboards and, and paintings that I'm doing now. It's like I, I get very, very happy and excited, just hoping that, you know, other people might get as excited about it. But pe- but people are not necessarily that excited, like my fans are. But, you know, you said I have like whatever X amount of fans on Twitter. That's actually not a lot of fans. Um, when you when you when you think about how that translates into financing. Do you know what I mean? People have like people have like two million Instagram fans, and they still can't get financing. You know. So the second part of the question is, so you talk about this whole conversation how you do, you don't want to do the seven year thing on a movie again to like you know make this this one film that you want it to be more of a you know streamlined like studio process or whatever, but based on how you feel about the film, would you do that again? Would you put seven years into another script again? You know, like. To, to make one thing that you're really proud of? Yeah, I would, except that I still need like a lot more money than I can get. That's the problem, you know? I, don't, I can't get that much money, you know? And I don't think, it's weird because people that have money, they have so much money, they have to throw away their money in order to like not pay too many taxes. They, they need tax shelters. So like whatever, like $10 million is so little money to people who have a lot of money. And they're just, they just need to find me. You know? Find Anna Biller. Go yeah, to Anna, what is Anna Biller.com. Well, let's go to it. Let's figure out what's the exact way that people can get to you. It's so funny because I show like I have these like mood boards and things for my new projects and people, you know, will look at it. And some people are just like, this is incredible. This is a work of art. Can I can I keep this? Will you sign it for me? And other people are just their face kind of like turns gray when they look at it. It's so interesting because this is like my world. And, you know, some people like it and some people don't, you know, but it's a girly world. This is what I'm realizing. You know, I don't think of it as a girly world, but I guess it is a girly world. And, you know, because I think most of the cinema that I love from old Hollywood is more girly than anything today. Even the masculine stuff is girly compared to today. You know what I mean? Like even like Spartacus is girly, you know, it's got all those 
I don't know. You know what I mean? I love Spartacus. Yeah, but do you know what I mean? It's got romance and it's got all these costumes and it's got Kirk Douglas looking so handsome or whatever. You know, it's like you know what I mean? It's got like gay gay things in it. It's not campy, but you know what I mean? It's 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 like got a feminine. There's a feminine aesthetic to almost all the classic movies, even the war movies. No, not the war movies necessarily, but most of the movies have some sort of like feminine aesthetic kind of built in because everybody was more cross-gender back then. You know, I mean, I know it's weird to say, but like people think of now as like that. But I think like men were constantly watching musicals and men were, you know, singing love songs that we were talking about women's gowns. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it was like everybody was into it. Everybody was into costume and self-presentation. So, so like, because my stuff takes so much from old Hollywood, I think that's, it's got a kind of a girliness to it that makes a lot of men sort of like shudder, go, ew, like, what? You know what I mean? They don't get it. They don't get where that, it's like just like a pleasure, I guess, in the visual sense of visuals or, or sense of color, or sense of, there's a sense of play, sense of humor, like that I try to put in. And it's, I mean, I, I really identify a lot with like some of these gay male filmmakers, for example, like, Pasolini or Fassbender who had that whole it's like art and it's it's not camp but it's like play playfulness and you know sense of melodrama but 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 darkness you know just but it's not now it's not like really masculine per se you know it's kind of I think that's the the look that I that I see is is like it's like a shudder of not me, not masculine enough. Go away, you know. It's like I get, and I think it's like so many of the producers are really, are really, um, you know, trying to protect their the kind of the masculinity of their product. I think there's so much masculine product out there. It's like it's almost like that is the default product is a masculine product, and people don't even think about it. And if if you're deviating from that, it just seems like wrong, you know. Well. I really appreciate, I mean, I haven't even seen The Love Witch yet. I'm actually going to watch it tonight. But um, yeah, the the look of that you achieved in that film is incredible. And I want to see more like that. And I feel like I see it every once in a while. Like, you know, there's this movie, um, oh, what's it called? Oh, my God. Um, it's a Ty West film. It's a horror film. It's a 70s throwback film. And it feels like they they went for a similar thing, you know, where it was like, that kind of classic vintage look, you know? Um, and I really love films that do that. And there aren't very many of them that that achieve that or go in the old school way where they like, you know, embrace, um, you know, art uh, design and costume and color in that old Hollywood style. And I love that stuff. I eat it up. It's great, you know? So yeah, I don't know what people are on. Crazy. It's, I think it's just people are used to like something they're used to a certain thing and especially producers because they see like so much product go by through their office like they're reading thousands of scripts and seeing thousands of images and there's a kind of a, a uniformity to a lot of it because people are very aware of trying to fit in to the industry as it is now and if you have something that's not fitting into that um it could just seem like you're amateur and i think maybe that's partly some some, some of the stuff that happens on my sets too is that some of the discomfort sometimes people have on my sets it has to do with that as well but they might think that the difference that they see is amateur you know and it makes them like disrespect the project and not and disrespect me do you know because they're not like really necessarily like they don't know what art is or something 
or they don't see the value of it you know what i mean like a, it's just a kind of like a slickness in the sort of like darkness and slickness and metallic you know sort of i don't know um that i'm not i'm not doing and i'm not it's not like people don't necessarily think i'm not they don't think it's on purpose necessarily they just think it's bad you know and that there's just like a certain percentage of people that are like that and i think it's why i've had i suck i think it's why i've struggled so much with my career that i'm trying to do this thing like it's hard enough if you're trying to do exactly what the industry is already doing to get a movie made but if you're trying to do something else you know i don't know if that makes it easier because you stand out more or maybe it does make it harder because it's because they could just plug something in that they you know they feel like they know is going to sell because they've seen it before you know it does feel like um, it's a common thread. I mean, I don't think this podcast was named what it was accidentally, right? Uh, it seems to be a common thread amongst all the people we talk to um, that everyone just struggles to get the financing and attention. And and but I but just uh, having a bird's eye view at your career on a it's incredibly impressive. And though I'm sure you feel like you've struggled from the outside without knowing any of that. It's like, oh, you've, you're Rotterdam with your first feature, Rotterdam with your second oscilloscope distributor film. Oh my gosh. It, like everyone talks about the love witch, you know, it's like you really have created a certain industry buzz, even though it's not trickling down right this second to like amassing your budget. Um, I no, always, I, no, I, I've been very lucky, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to complain. I'm just oh, saying so that's um, the point of the I'm podcast that, though. Um, <laughs> I'm just learning I'm just learning more how the industry works and and then and trying to I mean I'm I've actually been humbled a little bit by learning that it isn't that easy to get ten million dollars. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's like it was like dumb of me to think it was, you know. So it's like and I could still get it. But um, you know, I think also the less the lower your budget is I think the more creative control you have in general, and that's something to think about as well. Well, let's jump into our final questions. These are those kind of like more introspective ones that, that we talked about the the pre <laughs> the pre podcast session. Um, so our first question is: What's the first film you've ever made, and how do you feel about it now? Um, well, the, my first um, serious film was a sixteen millimeter film called Three Examples of Myself as Queen, and I cringe when I see it now, uh, but I still like it. And I think it's kind of subversive and it's interesting and it's an interesting first film. And also people still screen it, which is interesting. Student film, you know. I made some short films before that on Super 8 and on video, which I don't think they were good enough really to mention. So I consider that my first, going down to 16 millimeter, I think it was my first real film. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Oh, I don't know. Um, advice? I think it was from my, I had two, uh, when I was at CalArts, I had two pieces of advice that stick with me today. One of them is um, I was in, uh, I was in a professor's office in CalArts and he was actually an art teacher, but he was very, very well versed in cinema. And I was, I used to lug my Super 8 projector into people's offices and project my films on the wall and it was reversal. So it was the original, I would just get more and more tattered and dusty. And the teachers thought I was hilarious, you know. I was doing these musical shorts, um, like music, like trying to make like lavish musical numbers in like apartment. And um, this teacher looked at that 
film and he said, um, why are you shooting on Super 8? I said, well, what, what should I be shooting on? He said, Vincent Manelli would use 35 millimeter. And that was the, the best advice I ever got because that made me move to 16 millimeter and you know, apply to be inter-school. I was in the art school actually, to apply to be inter-school with film and to start making 16 millimeter films. Just that one comment, he just said Vincent Manelli. So what he did was he saw something in my like trashy little cheap Super 8 film. He saw that I was actually trying to be Vincent Manelli, that it wasn't like a joke, it wasn't a parody, I wasn't trying to be pathetic. See, all the other teachers just were talking about pathos and failure. You know, just because I had no money and I was just trying to do it. But he saw what the real fantasy was and thought I should do that real fantasy and move there and make real cinema. And so I did. Um, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yeah, my goal is to make the next film and then after that to make the next film. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? I don't know. I, I don't think you can go back in time. I think you just have to... <laughs> do all your mistakes and be humiliated and try then frustrated and try again. Our final question is, is making movies hard? Yeah, being on the set is really hard. And I think that's mainly because of um, other people. My, my favorite um, people on sets are usually the actors. I love working with actors. The actors are, you know, you're working for years on this thing, trying to put it together. And then, but it's, it doesn't become anything really until the actors come in and they, they like bring it to life. It's like magic. Um, so it, it isn't hard working with actors. It's a pure joy. It's, it's been a little bit hard on me working with some of the crew. Well, Anna, this has been fantastic. Yeah, thank um, you. Where should people go if they want to, you know, learn more about you or watch your films? Where should people head? Um, well, my films are, um, they can go to my website, lifeofastar.com if they want to see films besides The Love Witch. I have my other films there. Um, my short films are on Criterion channel, um, and I'm pretty usually pretty active on Twitter for my daily whatever um, opinions about life, cinema, feminism. Nice. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Anna Biller for making this episode happen. It was a very fun conversation. You can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MMIHpodcast. I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where are you? I'm at Liz Manish Show on Twitter, crawling at a snail's pace towards 2,000 followers, and Liz Manish Show Film on Instagram. What are you at now? Ayla, I have to know. Uh, I think last I checked it was 1950. I think I like lost one in the past oh. week. <laughs> I think it's 1957. I will check. Oh, I'm going to okay. check for us. It's so exciting. It's only oh, 43 more people. It is 1957. I did lose one. Yep. Oh, no. Oh, no. I follow you, right? I must. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't I checked, do. but I think so. I think I do. If I don't, I'll follow you now. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you like the show, please tell a friend, spread the word, let us let people know about the show. You can also leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher that also does that in a more, you know, definitive way. Um, and thanks to editor Ulrich probably for doing this episode. Thanks, Ulrich. Well, you're welcome. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week.
Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of independent filmmaking. I always just want to change it up a little bit, Ulrich. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm just doing this is a gushy book All right. Um, I will do it again because I don't know if you could use any of that, but I will. You could you could do what you want in the edit. All right. Making movies is hard. Fuck. Okay. You can also click the link to our bio to get to our new YouTube page subscriber and new YouTube page subscriber. What does that mean? Link to our bio to our brand new YouTube page to subscribe. That's what I meant to say.